Hey everybody, this is Greg Penix, and you're listening to the 28th issue of Fantasy Comic Book Editor League. As I said in the closing minutes of last episode, I was going to move away from the 50-year history we've thus chronicled of the Amazing Comics Group, and uh, take a few... uh, issues or slash episodes to uh, do other asides, other comic book fantasies. And I mentioned, I gave a little teaser, that this one was going to be about Atlas Comics. Atlas Comics, 1975, pretty much they existed. Well, a little in 74 and then a little in 75. Basically lasted a year. Um, I was fascinated by them. They ended, of course, too early, too soon. And many of my... uh, childhood and early comic book fantasies revolved around things comics i loved that got canceled and i couldn't stand it so almost like fan fiction i would in my brain pretend that they still were going and uh what would have happened if they kept going because i'm a little psychotic and um so Alice Comics was uh, a comic company started by Martin Goodman and his son Chip. The, uh, Martin Goodman was the guy who started Marvel Comics back in the late 30s when it was timely. And in the 70s, there was kind of some buyout situation or he just wanted to step down. But he also wanted his son Chip to have some something to do because uh, he was a spoiled little shit, it sounds like, Chip Goodman. And he was like, okay... My son Chip's going to stay in charge of Marvel, even though I'm kind of stepping down from day to day. Of course, everyone else was like, no, Stan Lee has earned this. Chip Goodman's nothing. So they felt slighted because they basically edged Chip Goodman out of the whole thing. And so even though Martin Goodman wanted to get out of the comic book game, he was so pissed off. He said... I'm going to start a new comic company just so I could put my son Chip in charge and so we can destroy Marvel and hopefully DC along the way. But really, it was just about vengeance and revenge. Um, So it came from a bad idea. And yet, uh, strangely enough, a lot of good things came out of Atlas on the page and behind the page. Um, One of them was that he realized he'd have to woo away some talent from Marvel and DC. So they paid way better page rates um, than any other comic company had ever done as far as uh, just basically to woo artists away from working for Marvel and DC because they they, they were starting from scratch. And uh, to be honest, I think Martin Goodman had no shit about comics and so did Chip. They really didn't know what they were doing. They were just like, you know, the overhead Sears, overseers of Marvel. And they hired like people like Stan Lee and all the editors knew comics. So they started Atlas Comics and trying to be a big fuck you to Marvel. And uh, they actually did some good things. Um, so they published about, they kind of uh, maybe shot their wad a little too early. I think the first couple months they just put out like i don't know 18 titles so they spread themselves a little thin they didn't grow organically they were just trying to flood the stands and make a dent and hopefully take away a lot of marvel's readers which i don't think they did because uh, a year after they folded they were in quarter bins my whole childhood those atlas comics even though some of them are way better than anything marvel and dc were putting out we're still, uh, nobody gave a shit, and they were you know, trying to get rid of them for a quarter. So, 
I basically made my history of Atlas Comics. And I stuck as close to the real history as I could, you know, like, oh, well, the first salvo of titles came out in November 74. So that's when I'm going to do it. And this artist was working on that. I didn't even like, it's not like Amazing Comics where I've came up with this whole thing that, oh, I'm paying them better so I can get anyone I want in comics. I was trying to keep it kind of realistic, like, okay, Atlas Atlas Comics had that much money, obviously to pay for that kind of talent. They were free at the time. I'll stick with those guys. So, um, so I found my old list, and that's why I'm doing this episode because uh, I still have it, and it's on graph paper, and it's the handwriting is a little too immaculate and perfect. It almost looks like a robot wrote it. Just another sign of my mania, and so first the first title in November 1974 coming out from atlas comics my atlas comics is weird tales of the macabre that was a comic an atlas comic almost all of these were until later on and um it it started out as like a house of mystery house of secrets you know horror various artists you know various stories which i always think in the mid 70s i always wanted more of that i loved like red circle sorcery and some of the smaller comic companies would try it um, DC, they were pretty tame, but I liked it in theory that every issue you get different artists, different writers, random stories. So I just figured I want that title. Weird Tales of the Macabre. In Atlas, in the real Atlas, it, it soon became a, um, a monster hero type showcase book. So it'd be like Weird Tales of the Macabre featuring, I don't know, Bog Beast or whatever horror character they wanted to promote. But in my atlas, it'll just stay an anthology title, Great Horror Stories. Next up is Iron Jaw, a barbarian comic, but it's in the far-flung future when Earth has fucked itself up so much from nuclear devastation that we've got reverted. And uh, there's still little signs here and there that it used to be our world. But uh, it's pretty much a barbarian comic. People are fighting with swords. Um, there's not much technology. And uh, Iron Joe was str- a very strange comic, though. It was written by Michael Fleischer, famous madman of comics. And I s- don't say that lightly because he once sued someone for Harlan Ellison for complimentary saying he was, you know, a nut. Like, it was a compliment. He was saying, yeah, his comics are nutty. He's crazy. I love him. And he got sued. So I'm going to say it. He's not going to listen to this. Nobody listens to this podcast. <clears throat> Michael Fleischer was pretty nutty, his comics. Uh, incredibly violent. He somehow slipped uh, lots of crazy violent shit through the Comics Code Authority. But he created Iron Jaw. And the first issue of Iron Jaw, this barbarian hero, he's a total bastard. He really is just, he's not an anti-hero. He's an utter bastard. I think in the first issue, he kind of attempts to rape a woman. And does all of these but he's basically out there just for himself. He's not like Conan, who every now and then will do something altruistic or like heroic. He's just a survivor in this shitty world, and he's a bastard. The covers were by Neil Adams, the inside art. Um, the first issue was Mike Sikowski. Um, I didn't like the, his art as a kid. It was very old school. But then they got Pablo Marcos to draw it, um, the Spanish artist, who as a kid, I loved him. Lots of lines you know, from the Neil Adams school of, like, 
Just draw every single line on that, you know, house. And so in my reality, Pablo Marcos would be the artist from the beginning. And Michael Fleischer would be writing it, of course. And uh, next up, well, one of my, this was one of my favorite comics as a kid, Planet of the Vampires. And it was basically a take on Omega Man mixed with Planet of the Apes where these astronauts come down to Earth after being in space. And the whole world is like taken over by vampires. Maybe there's a handful of humans here and there. So it's almost like a zombie movie type thing. But the vampires are smart. They're not just dumb zombies. They can use science, uh, whatever. And they're basically breeding humans as feeding stock, blood stock. And it was a really cool comic, especially in 75. It definitely was cooler than anything Marvel and DC were putting out. And I think they only had like two issues of the original team. And then it went off on some tangents, but still the basic concept. So it was created and written by John Albano, who was an editor at Atlas, did a lot of their, wrote a lot of titles for them. Didn't do much other than Atlas. He, he was popping around in various companies over the years. I think he did stuff for Creepy and Eerie at Warren and maybe the Marvel Black and White line, some Marvel comics. But um, he was given the chance to run with, run with the ball at Atlas. And uh, so he's going to write this. And the art, at the, which is the same artist who drew it, is Pat Broderick. And 1974-75, Pat Broderick was just coming out. He was really good. I know Pat Broderick became pretty crappy in the 80s, uh, mid-80s. But man, he was so in that Neil Adams school, like, he did it good. And um, I'm going to have Frank McLaughlin inking it because he inked a lot of shit at Atlas. And he was a competent inker who could, you know, wouldn't uh, fuck up a artist's pencils. So the next title is Phoenix. Phoenix was like their sci-fi superhero. And um, it was... a. Uh, Created by David Kraft, another uh, guy who came over from Marvel. And uh, he um, did a lot of stuff for Atlas. And to be honest, I didn't even really like Phoenix. But I just figured I needed like a a traditional type superhero like that in the Atlas comics universe. And the artist was Sal Amendola. And he will be the artist in ours as well. He had a very interesting style, like... um, very unique, uh, almost like commercial art. Like he could have drawn the art in a fashion catalog or those newspaper ads used to see as a kid when they used to draw the you know use art instead of photos all the time. It was it was different, and but basically pretty good style. Um, and the last of the five titles introduced in November '74 is Destructor. And this one, I'm not changing a damn thing because it was an amazing superhero comic. It was written by Archie Goodwin, drawn by, penciled by Steve Ditko, and inked by Wally Wood. And um, Ditko and Wood collaborated a few times in their careers. And it is gold. When Steve Ditko does the layouts and Wally Wood adds the fine, polished finishes on it, it's some good superhero art. And you got Archie Goodwin writing it, one of the most competent writers in comics history, you know. Back then, when there weren't that many, so um, yeah, and that's and that's another thing. Um, like I said, in this one, I'm not getting that crazy. So I mean, sure, Phoenix could have been drawn by Neil Adams, but I was trying to keep it close to reality. Okay, twelve seventy four, December seventy four. Um, we introduced five new titles, and those are going to be Tiger Man. 
Tiger Man was the coolest fucking superhero. He had like a tiger face mask and this like tiger stripes on his torso and then these blue leggings and arms. The first issue, he had no leggings, so he he looked like he was wearing shorts or like a one-piece bathing suit. But then they realized that looked silly. I thought Tiger Man was fucking rad when I was a kid. And he just looked so cool. And he was almost like Wolverine. I mean, Wolverine was probably just popping up around then. But, you know, like he would, when he fought some muggers, he had these claws. And he'd fucking rake their faces and you see blood. And, like, it's like Atlas, that's another thing Atlas did before its time. They were really violent superhero comics. Like, there was stuff that, you know, Marvel and DC, I don't know how they got around the comics code better than Marvel and DC. Maybe they were paying them off with all of Martin Goodman's money. I don't know. But they snuck a lot of stuff in there that the mate, the big two were not doing. So Tiger Man, uh, written by John Albino, once again. I think he created Tiger Man in our reality. And I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I I liked Ernie Colan's art. I knew it was interesting, but it was too interesting for what I wanted Tiger Man to be. So I'm going to have Al Milgram and Terry Austin draw it. Al Milgram, never that great an artist, but when he was inked by Terry Austin a few times, I believe on Captain Marvel and Marvel, it looked pretty slick and good. So I guess that's why I decided to put that in. The next comic is Target, and Target was basically like a dirty hairy type character. And uh it was um then they turned him into a superhero. So I have a feeling when I made this list, <clears throat> I probably didn't like when he was just a dirty hairy super cop. And I probably just said, Oh yeah, he's that superhero guy who's I don't know, kinda like the Punisher. And that's gonna be written by Archie Goodwin, because Archie Goodwin can write like gritty stuff, more adult skewed. And it's gonna be penciled by Rich Buckler. Um, you know, very competent rip-off artist. He, he could just, whenever he took over a title, he just copied someone's style. But he did it pretty good. And um, it's going to be inked by Alan Weiss. So that'll be extra illustrative. Alan Weiss was one of those very illustrative artists. When he penciled his own work, he kind of drew things a little wonky, uh, faces and stuff. But he was a fine finisher as far as inking. Next title, probably one of the best things to come out of Atlas Comics, if you one of any the two best comics that they published, Howard Chaikin's The Scorpion. And The Scorpion was amazing shit. It was Chaikin at his early prime, because Chaikin, I guess, has had many periods, different styles. But that mid-70s Chaikin, when he got his style down, he's doing a, it's a 30s um, mercenary soldier for a fortune type guy. But with a total shaken sensibility, he's, you know, he's got a sense of humor. Um, it is just, they're still to this day. They're I can't believe no one's no one's ever reprinted them. Amazing comics, of course. Atlas, <clears throat> they were run by morons, and after the first two months of like trying to make good shit, they changed almost all the titles. Scorpion became a superhero. They gave him a shitty outfit, moved him up to the seventies. Totally forgot that he was this thirties amazing character you know pulp character next up probably my second favorite comic from atlas comics wolf the barbarian probably one of my favorite barbarian comics of all time um having said that i'm not a big barbarian comics fan they're usually kind of lunk-headed and it's just a bunch of testosterone dripping off the pages but wolf was different wolf was like serious world building it was 
he made this crazy fantasy world. It's like another planet that's gigantic, but it's pretty much that planet is like a sword and sor- sorcery world. You know, there's sorcerers and guys with swords fighting each other. Not much technology. And <clears throat> it was created, written and drawn, penciled by Larry Hama. Very early in his career, way before he created G.I. Joe and all that shit. And I'm going to have Larry Hama, though, you know, was a little rough. So he always needs a good inker. So that would be Klaus Jansen. And Klaus Jansen, who pretty much in the last 20 years has become my least favorite inker and penciler. He was so good in the mid-70s. He could add such a good polish to any artist he drew. You could give him Don Heck. Don Heck would look great for that issue. Klaus Jansen inked him. So that's going to be Wolf. And then the last new title introduced is Grim Ghost. And that is going to be by Ernie, drawn by Ernie Colon. So I, I guess I did like him enough. I just figured that he wasn't Tiger Man, superhero worthy. Grim Ghost was another weird Michael Fleischer creation. Uh, definitely like a hero, but with this horror bent where he was a, I don't know, 18th century, uh, what do you call that? Like a, a highwayman, a bandit. He gets killed, and so now in the 70s, he's this ghost that goes around meeting out justice to appease his demonic overlords in hell since he went to hell. And definitely before its time, the theme, beautifully drawn by Colin, weirdly written by Fleischer. So that's going to be that. Then, you know, of course, as the months, so that's the pretty much, it's going to have 10 titles, and that's manageable. There's a lot of changes, you know, going on. I have the art changes. Um, Here's a sign that uh, I guess I thought that um, Wally, wouldn't, Wally Wood wouldn't stick around inking Steve Ditko for too long. So after a few months, Frank McLaughlin starts inking him. Uh, Iron Jaw gets taken over by Archie Goodwin. And Michael Fleischer takes over Phoenix. And that is because in March 75, I'm sorry, September 75, which was almost the last month of Atlas's existence, unfortunately... Because one of the great titles they had was called Demon Hunter, created by Rich Buckler with some help from David Kraft. And Rich Buckler wasn't much of a, you know, never was known for his writing, but man, Demon Hunter, some high concept shit. I wish it went on for 500 issues. It was this Vietnam vet, comes back, his life is shit. His girlfriend is, takes off, he's broke. And then this weird cult uh, of assassins or something hire him and it turns out they're a front for this like demonic cult and they're trying to uh bring about this thing called xenogenesis which is the opening the portal between you know the hellish realms and unleashing this arm an army of devils and demons into our world and he's actually working for them until he realizes what's going on and so he rebels against them and then tries to stop them and becomes their greatest nemesis. He was just this cool character. He had this thing called the Shadow Cloak where he could reach into it. I guess it was a door- doorway into other dimensions and any weapon. For some reason, they were always old-timey weapons like a halberd or a pike or a you know, mace or something. The, the old kind of mace, not the pepper spray. And um, yeah, just a wicked-looking character. Great concept. I'm really excited that Demon Hunter, in my reality, gets to continue after one issue, because that's all they had. So that's uh, 
So in our reality, that was the last new title. That was pretty much the end of Atlas. But in my reality, Atlas did better on the newsstands, and it's going to keep going. So let's see what happens. So um, around this time, we're going to have a major change. Now we're starting to shake things up. Around this time, this is when uh, Steve Gerber was uh, you know, about to create Howard the Duck and already probably had some problems with Marvel's management because he was always trying to write that weird stuff. And sometimes editor would be like, Steve, this is too weird for a Marvel comic. What are you doing? So, okay, here's our first point of divergence. We go to Steve Gerber and say, listen, dude, you write what you want because you're great. And, yeah, our comics are weird anyway. We got Michael Fleischer writing, uh, having protagonists who are fucking rapists and murderers. So, yeah, you come on over. So he's going to take over Phoenix from Michael Fleischer, um, originally started by David Kraft, and still with Sal Amendola art. And he's also going to introduce... In October 75, which is when he did in our reality, Howard the Duck will be an Atlas comic. And that's going to be Gerber and, oh, God, I had such bad taste then. And Milgram and Austin will be drawing that. And uh, because Milgram and Austin are no longer drawing Tiger Man, I guess now I'm going to give Ernie Colon the chance to draw Tiger Man. I don't know why all of a sudden it's okay. But, um, yeah, Howard the Duck... As long as, you know, you got just semi-competent art, it's it's all about Steve Gerber's writing anyway, right? You know? So, um, so I think that's pretty much the changes then. Yeah, Howard the Duck, new title from Atlas. Okay, then I have January 76. I think those are pretty much just um, artist changes. I don't see a new title. And this is way past the point where they were already out of business. Um, well, not way past it. This is a few months. Oh, yeah, this is what happens. Uh, we get rid of Planet of the Vampires. Uh, it was a great comic, but I just figured it didn't really have that much lasting power. You know, it's almost like I'm treating it like a mini series. And, um, you know, six issues, they tell their story, they're out. And so that's going to be taken over by Dark Avenger, John Albano, with art by Pat Broderick. And, uh, Dark Avenger was a backup in, I, I believe, Phoenix number three. And it was a five-page, really quirky, weird little superhero story. But it was so beautifully drawn by Pat Broderick. As a kid, I just obsessed about it. I was like, five pages? I want 20,000 issues of this. What, what's going on? So Dark Avenger is basically a Batman-type creature of the night. And uh, that'll be fun. Because everyone loves those characters. And, um, yeah, I think that's the only change there. Even though I realized, looking at my list, I fucked up. Dark Adventure even started earlier than that. Because I basically gave Planet of the Vampires like six issues, maybe eight. And just told a nice story. Um, and then, and then I don't know why, but in a few months, Milgram and Austin will take over Dark Avenger. So Pat Broderick can go to Phoenix. And that is because Pat Broderick did those amazing Captain Marvels in the 70s. You know, drawing a cosmic hero. So I figure I want Pat Broderick drawing Phoenix, our cosmic hero. And with Steve Gerber writing. That's going to be a damn good comic. Also, uh, I guess at the time I figured Scorpion couldn't last that long. Because, you know, you know the comic market. How, much, how long are people going to put up with a guy in the 30s? Uh, you know, a pulp era hero. It just wasn't a thing. But I figure, you know, there was a good, like... Two year and a half of stories. Howard Chicken did some good shit. 
But he's going to move on in, uh, I'm sorry, in June 76. Scorpion's going away and we're bringing in Monarch Starstalker. That was a, actually a one shot for Marvel premiere in that time. And, you know, before Star Wars came out, Howard Chaykin did this amazing one shot of this amazingly cool character, Monarch Starstalker. Totally wrote it and drew it. It was really adult for its time. Like Monarch Starstalker, like he was fucking. You could tell. Like, he, you know, they don't show it. There's no penetration. But all the other characters you basically had no genitalia. They, as far as they were concerned, sex was an alien concept. But Howard Chaykin being Howard Chaykin, he made this like kind of adult hero and got it into Marvel. And he was so... That's another one that got away. I always wish there was more Monarch Starstalker. It was such a good issue. One of my favorite comics of my childhood. And I still have it and still flip through it every now and then. Still think it's a great, excellent comic book. One of the best comics Marvel put out in the 70s. Just one issue. So that's going to be the new thing. And of course, you know, science fiction is big in the 70s. And a few months, Star Wars is going to come out. And, you know, so that's got legs. That can go for a while. Okay, so basically in... January 77, we're streamlining the line and actually getting rid of some titles. And um, I can't even see. It's kind of hard to tell. No, I don't know. I'm confused. I did did my list differently then. They're a little confusing. So maybe I'm not streamlining the title. I just got rid of some and added some others. But um, I don't see many major changes here. Just some anchor changes for the most part. Um... Uh, Yep. Oh, and though I am going to have Howard the Duck taken over by uh, Steve Gerber and um, I'm sorry, the art will be taken over by Steve Lealoha, which is much better than Milgram and Austin, who are now on Dark Avenger. So that's going to be way better. And um, because Lealoha did do some inks, I believe, on some Howard the Ducks. And Steve Lillow has a re- perfect style for Howard the Duck. He was great at funny animal art. He did his Newton the Rabbit stories for Quack a few years later, maybe just a year later. So just a great artist who is very underused. I assume he's like some stoner dude who's slow. Because Marvel used him a lot to ink. And every now and then he would pencil. But he just didn't seem to do much. So they liked his work apparently, but I don't know. So, here's another change. I'm doing another point of divergence here. I figure, so Steve Ditko, we've been keeping him happy over here at Atlas Comics. Because, you know, he was out of a job after a year there. He, he was drawing like two titles a month. But no, he's, the past couple years, he's been working for Atlas, liking it. So, in April, um, yes, April 1977, when it comes time for him to make Shade, the changing man at DC, he makes it for us. Why wouldn't he? He's working for Atlas. So Shade the Changing Man would be an Atlas title. And I'd basically try to gussy up the art, I guess. Teenage Greg thought that Al Weiss should ink Steve Ditko. So that would almost be like the Ditko Wood thing, where getting Ditko to do the layouts and having a really illustrative artist add a lot of polish. Though that would probably obliterate a lot of Ditko-ness. And he probably wouldn't like it either. But that's, you know, when I was a youngster, I didn't appreciate the finer artists in comics who were a little wonky. I wanted everything to look like Neil Adams. Just as long as they had lots of lines, I liked it. Okay, so now we have another uh, in May of 77. 
we have another uh, divergence. And this is just a total flight of fancy. But this was basically the main point of divergence why Atlas would succeed. Because in our reality, this comic book franchise actually... A lot of people argue that Marvel Comics might have not survived the late 70s if, if they didn't get this franchise. And of course, I'm speaking of Star Wars, the comic book. So Star Wars, the comic book, actually came out a few months was before the movie did in summer of 77. It came out in spring. And it was uh, Roy Thomas was working at Marvel, editor-in-chief, and... He had to argue with them. He's like, guys, I think this could be a great comic. Uh, I heard about it. Um, it's it's could be really good. And everyone's like, nah, science fiction doesn't sell. It comes out. It gets like multiple printings. First time Marvel Comics has had to do that in decades. And basically sells millions of copies, which no comics back then did anymore. That was a thing from the 40s and 50s when comics would sell that much. And some a lot of people say, probably Roy Thomas more than any, that it saved Marvel because they weren't doing too good then. Um, they were just puttering along and the head corporation was like, hey, why don't we even keep publishing these things? There's barely any profit in them. So that's going to be Star Wars. We're going to have Steve Gerber take it over because he's our superstar hot shit writer. And I think he'd do a damn good Star Wars and, uh, you know, writing wise. And then Pat Broderick and Terry Austin. So that's going to look, that's going to be some slick shit. So they're going to be drawing it. It's going to be way better than the Marvel Star Wars comic. Trust me on this. I know these things. And, uh, God, I forgot about this. There's another point of divergence. Then I figure in December 77, a few months after he appeared in England's 2018 magazine, we'd start reprinting Judge Dredd in a monthly title. We'd have reprints of Judge Dredd. Of course, that implies as the months and years go on, we'll probably have a licensing deal with them and start publishing Rogue Trooper. And all the other 2080 comics, if they sell well. So I think Judge Dredd had a crossover appeal that uh, it could have uh, been something if it was published in America in the late, late 70s. Um, it would be cheap, though. It would just be licensing from 2080. You wouldn't have to pay any artists. Just reprint, you know. So what the hell? See, I'm very practical with Atlas Comics. There's no pie-in-the-sky shit here. I'm just working with what I got. Though I am changing a few things. Then, January 1978, we got... Um, oh, I forgot to mention. I'm sorry. Shade the Changing Man. I guess I always realized Steve Ditko never actually wrote his comics, even though he created everything. But he'd always have a dialogue guy. So I just picked David Kraft to give it some snappy dialogue. He'd probably be putting in some Blue Oyster cult references and shit. He liked to do stuff like that. He was like a cut-rate Steve Gerber in a way. Okay, let's get back to January 78. Another point of divergence. Um, I got to do this in every comic company I've made since I was a kid. I got to have like an Avengers type group. All these heroes we've introduced, a handful of them, get them together and make a super group. So uh, that is going to be called the Furies, just like in the Amazing Comics group. So uh, yeah, the Furies will be uh, David Kraft will write it. He was great at writing the Defenders. Well, not great, but at the time, it was better than most at Marvel. So he can do a team book. And uh, we're going to get Milgram and Marcos to uh, draw that one. And uh, I believe, yeah, I didn't see, I wasn't as uh, 
exacting because I have him drawing Dark Avenger just a few months before. So I don't know if he's going to be drawing two comics or not. Or I just didn't write who's going to take over Dark Avenger when they take over the Furies. So there you have it. I stopped there. But um, in my mind, Atlas Comics would still be a going, growing concern, still be published in 2021, due to, probably due to Star Wars. They were to get him on the financial basis to keep going, and hopefully they'd have other hits. Of course, Howard the Duck was a huge hit um, for Marvel, a crossover appeal, um, written up in many magazines. The first issue was like a collector's item. You couldn't even find it. So we got Howard the Duck. That's going to keep going because we're not going to dick over Steve Gerber. And uh, so uh, that's basically it. I'm looking at this and I still want these comics to be published. Even though I didn't pick the best artist I could have in the whole world because I was trying to be practical. But man, just having Monarch Starstalker continue for a while and having Shade the Changing Man continue and uh, all that stuff. But who knows? I haven't even really thought it through, but, you know, in the early 80s, Jack Kirby leaves Marvel, goes to Pacific, because they give him more rights and stuff. Maybe we would have had something like that in the early 80s. We would have been like, okay, let's have a whole secondary line. Where we give artists the complete rights and everything. They can do little comics like that, like the Epic Comics Group. And we would have sucked away all these other artists and writers. So I guess the main point of departure here is somehow... We have to get rid of Martin Goodman and Chip Goodman and just have David Kraft and Jeff Roven. Jeff Roven was another big part of Atlas. Uh, didn't do many comics, but wrote many books about comics and seemed to have all the good choices that Atlas made in the first two years. That was all Jeff Roven. And then when he gets kind of booted out, all of a sudden the line literally goes to shit very quickly. All these great comics were set up in two issues. Then they just kick off the brilliant artist and writer and put in some hack, change the direction in a really stupid way. It's really distinct. Um, if you ever have a... You can't get these for a quarter anymore. They're relatively cheap, but you're not going to find any of these for less than a few bucks. Um, it's just because they're from the 70s, and now it doesn't matter. If it's old, you're going to have to pay a little money for it. But I highly recommend just... If you have a chance, if you like have one of those sites where you can rip comics... Just you got to read them all. It's it's. I own almost every Atlas comic. It's fascinating reading this one year comics history. Just seeing how fast it changes and and there's also a great issue of Comic Book Artist, the wonderful magazine by John B. Cook. That is, it's, it's a fat issue. It's almost like a small novel, you know, um, nonfiction no, uh, book. And it is the history of Atlas Comics. That one year, what the hell happened? Uh, of course, they called it Vengeance Incorporated. That was the subtitle. Because the whole comic company was based on revenge. And uh, you can kind of tell. Because uh, other than Jeff Rovin making some great choices, Martin Goodman and Chip Goodman were just fucking idiots who were just like... And they lost a lot of money, and they deserved to. So that's it, guys. Um, I didn't think any... I probably won't think any more about Atlas Comics. I always will in my heart of hearts. But as far as making a detailed list of what's going to happen in the next 30 years um, after the 70s end, that's not going to happen. Though it might. My insanity might deepen. And uh, who knows? So that's it. Uh, next episode, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. We won't be going back to Amazing Comics, though, for at least a couple episodes. 
So, um, but I might uh, bring out some of my other random lists and fantasies that I can find in my files just to show what a maniac I was and still am. And uh, thanks for listening. And go out there and read some Alice comics. You'll be glad you did. Bye.